Before we get started, before any of this starts, I'd like to remind you that you can experience an ad-free version of this by clicking the link in the description that says plus.acast.com slash s slash Radio Free Catholic. May God bless you and the Virgin protect you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Exurgat deus dispentur de nemici eius. Et let God arise and let his enemies be scattered, and let all those who hate him flee from before his face. Getting started this morning, I want to give a hat tip to Dr. Anthony Stein, um, who published this morning, as I'm recording this, a, uh, <clears throat> a statement from Bishop Athanasius Schneider. I think one of the things I like the most about Bishop Schneider is that he has <clears throat> a very clear eye. Even, <clears throat> even though most of what he does is kind of a, uh, comes from a, a conciliar perspective. And conciliar, I mean someone seeking to be reconciled with everything that he was brought up in the church with. Uh, Bishop Schneider is ostensibly younger than a good portion of the bishops. <clears throat> Not younger than all of them, to be sure, but younger than a good portion. Um, <clears throat> and would have actually spent significantly more time in, in the church in the aftermath of the Second Vatican Council. And so, would actually, in along the lines of, say, like the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, saw what the Council Fathers had intended, and then also saw what actually happened. Archbishop Sheen, I think one of the reasons why he is as celebrated as he is is because before the council he had a certain way of preaching and after the council he had the exact same way of preaching even though he did shift um obviously in line with the instructions of the church but his preaching style didn't change in fact actually if you look at a lot of his later homilies they match very closely with what he 
taught when he was doing um, the television show in New York. Very much the same all the way throughout, uh, despite the fact that obviously he did follow the uh, <clears throat> the the introduction of the Novus Ordo Missae and all, and all of that. He was still very much the same before the council as after the council, and that consistency, I think, was inspiring to a lot of to a lot of Catholics. And I only. Th- and I have to say, I think that because during that same period of time, most of that time, I wasn't even in the church. So <clears throat> the consistency that he had, you can kind of see that same consistency with Bishop Athanasius Schneider. With the death of George Cardinal Pell, I couldn't help but think that there was a major transition point because... In the last two weeks, we saw the death of Pope Benedict XVI and Cardinal Pell. And I couldn't help but feel like it was like we were coming to the closeout of an era. And it kind of inspired a set of thoughts that I want to extrapolate. This is Caleb the Mechanic. With Radio Free Catholic, let's get started with a prayer. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Sancta Michael Arcangeli, defende nos in proelio, contra nequitiam et insidias diaboli est opraesidium. Imperet ilideis supplicis de precamor, tuque princeps militae calestis, santana malios que spiritus malignos que ad perditionem animarum, pervegantur in mundo divina virtute, in infernum trude. Amen. Angela Dei qui custos es me, metibicomis in pietate superna. Hodie lumina custode rege et guberna. Amen. Cor Iesu Sacratissimum, miserere nobis. Mater dolorosa, ora pro nobis. Sancti Iosef, ora pro nobis. Domine, ostende facium tuum et salvi erimus. Ave Maria Purissima, Immaculata Conceptio Est. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. One of the things that everyone has been able to confirm, and this is coming from both the left the, the left side of Catholicism as well as the traditional side of Catholicism. Papa Benedetto had one singular act that set the stage for what for what we're going through today. And that was the motu proprio sumorum pontificum. <clears throat> I don't think we knew it at the time. I don't think anybody knew it at the time. I know for a fact I did not. But it, with the release of sumorum pontificum, what he did was, in a material manner, establish the spiritual fact that the mass of the ages, the eternal mass, could never be abrogated. And while he did so through the light of the hermeneutic of continuity, the fact is, is that the moment he said the words, that which we held to be sacred, 
for so long could never be reduced to the common. In saying that, what he said was, is the things that we set aside and, and, and set aside specifically for the worship of God, because it was holy, because it was sacred, because it was what God expressed through his church throughout the ages, because of that fact, we could never reduce the Tridentine liturgy <clears throat> to a mere personal preference. You could never do it because the fact is, is that the church worshipped in that manner for thousands of years. That's important to note. It's extraordinarily important to note. Because by stating what was obvious to all of those people who had been holding on to the tradition from as far back as from before the days of Archbishop Lefebvre, was now actually finally said by a pope in the aftermath of the changes of Paul VI. And that statement is irrevocable. It really honestly doesn't matter what Francis or any of or any of the people who come in after come into the pontificate after Pope Francis. It doesn't matter what they say. The fact is is that Papa Benedetto established the fact in the face of the modernist hordes that that which was always sacred can never be reduced in its stature, in its importance, and in its holiness. <clears throat> it should it should therefore come as no surprise that what that that one motu proprio would actually set the stage for what looks like the most obvious battle for the human soul in the history of humanity. The most obvious battle. I know I, it sounds like I'm maybe leaning a little bit far to, stay, to say that. Because most people would say, well, the most obvious battle was our Lord on the cross. And that is definitely true in retrospect. Obviously, our Lord's sacrifice on the cross set the period of time. It's a permanent point of reference in the period of time. Prior to our Lord's sacrifice on the cross, in the city of Rome, the calendar measured the years in the year of the establishment of the city. But after our Lord sacrificed on the cross, all time would now be measured based on that moment and would be measured based on that moment for far longer than the measurement than the measurement of time from the establishment of the city of Rome because we've now been measuring time on that scale even though modern secular people try to say before common era and common era rather than <clears throat> before Christ and anno domini or in the year of our lord the fact is, is that in the year, the measurement of time in the year of our Lord has lasted longer than any other measurement of time in history. And it's lasted throughout the establishment of his church, which has lasted longer than any institution 
on earth in history, nothing has lasted longer than the Catholic Church. And those are the point those are points of reference that in the natural world, in the material world, if you take a moment to consider them, you realize how important those things are in history, and you realize that they have to have an importance that stretches beyond the natural. It has to. Because the Roman Empire fell. And even with the establishment of the Holy Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire fell. None of the monarchies, which really weren't established until King Clovis, have lasted. Think about this. Every historical monarchy on earth is younger than the Catholic Church. All of them died younger than the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has been eternally established. So, of course, when you look back on history, it's easy, it's easy to see that the, the sacrifice of our Lord on the cross, which wasn't largely known at the time, when our, Lord was, when our Lord was rendering his sacrifice on the cross, when he was resurrected three days later, not a single person had, in Spain had ever heard of him. No one on the Iberian Peninsula had even heard of him. No one in England had heard of him. None of the Vikings had heard of him. No one in Africa had heard of him. No one in China had heard of him. And this is kind of what I mean where what Pope, what Pope Benedict did was more obvious to humanity. And traditionalists, the ones who had been holding fast to tradition in the aftermath of the Second Vatican Council, they knew the very moment it happened, because what Pope Benedict had done was he had firmly established the right, R-I-T-E, in history as the eternal, holy, sacred right. And of course, the motu proprio Samorum Pontificum had, had been promulgated throughout the whole earth, thereby making it obvious to everyone who was trying to hold to the Catholic faith that the Pope had just confirmed the eternal faith. And while he did so under the guise of the hermeneutic of continuity, and he did so with, a, I guess you could say, a kind of political statement in mind, <clears throat> I don't want to reduce it to a political statement, but... The fact is, is that he had done it in order, in order to make the traditional societies, specifically, in particular, the Society of St. Pius X, no longer the sole bastion for holding on to, for holding on to that portion of the faith. Now, to be sure, by the time he'd by the time he'd written Samorum Pontificum, you had the Fraternal Society of St. Peter and all of that. But with Samorum Pontificum, the FSSP, the Institute of Christ the King, um, the Institute of the Good Shepherd, all of those traditional orders exploded. 
It took a little while, to be sure, but there were more and more people attending these masses, and by the time you reached COVID, you had it was obvious for everyone to see that it was only the traditional orders who were actually holding on to the faith. Because all of the other churches were closed down. All of the other monasteries had basically shut their doors. Everything on earth had shut down for the coronavirus. Except the traditional Latin communities. Except for places where they worshipped using the eternal rite. Again, R-I-T-E. That is the Mass of the Ages, the Apostolic Mass, the Tridentine Mass. The Mass firmly established, eternally established by Pope St. Pius V. Because they were the only ones, they were the only ones. Everybody else had shut their doors. The entirety of the Novus Ordo ministry had shut its doors. And it became very obvious at that point that the people who were holding on to the eternal faith, the people who were holding on to the eternal traditions, the people who were holding on to that which was established by Christ himself, you want comfort amidst the, you want security amidst the storm? That's where you find it. Where people still worship God in the way of their forefathers. What that also lent itself to was a spawning of the idea that it wasn't the same church. Now keep in mind, all of these things would later be confirmed because you had so-called journalists like Austin Ivory and... and, and all of these modernist left leftist Catholics who were coming out and saying, well, it's not the same church. It's a, we, we have a different identity since the Second Vatican Council. Blah, 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 blah. Which, again, wasn't until it was confirmed by the Pope, in this case, Francis, to be true. And even though it did come, and, and even though it did come out of the mouths of cardinals, like, uh, and, and archbishops and bishops, I'm thinking of you, Cardinal Roach, even though it had been said by them, it wasn't until the Pope said it that it established a fact. And for those of you who are wondering whether or not the Pope is infallible, it would seem that God is determined that the Pope is going to teach the truth one way or another, even if it's by his anti-example. Because while Pope Benedict was establishing the eternal truth of the holiness of the eternal mass, and he was doing so under the auspices of the hermeneutic of continuity, it would be Francis who would later basically declare that the hermeneutic of continuity is a dead letter. And while that was understood by traditional Catholics, by the Catholics who held to the traditions... And on some level, it was understood by the leftist Catholics. The fact is, is that it didn't crystallize until Francis said it. And Francis declared the infallible truth 
that the post-conciliar church is not the same church as the church established by Christ. The moment, the moment he solidified the idea that the Second Vatican Council brought about a new ecclesiology that was not compatible with the hermeneutic of continuity, with his release of the motu proprio traditionis custodis, it had not been crystallized. We could argue about it. We could, we like, the, <clears throat> we were forced. We were forced to reconcile forced to try and reconcile. It was part of the confusion. How do, you, how do you reconcile the things that are going on in new church with the things that had always gone on, gone on in the church? How do you reconcile the ideas that are promulga- being promulgated in new church with the ideas that had spent 2,000 years in the making in the, in the eternal church? And Pope Francis, with his release of the motu proprio traditionis custodis, and with, and with Archbishop Roth's, Roach's release of the responsa abdubia, and with and with those two documents, had solidified the fact that you can't. That there is not a reconciliation between New Church and the and Christ Church. And this was firmly established. The first shot was fired, you could say, in this liturgical battle by Pope Benedict with his release of Summorum Pontificum. And with the death of Pope Benedict, it has now become more obvious because now the secular the secular media, also again hat tip Dr. Anthony Stein, the secular world is now hat is now happy that Benedict is out of the way because Benedict was the last bastion of the hermeneutic of continuity, and he was also the last bastion of the truth that the Catholic Church, in her identity, liturgically speaking. You can never remove her eternal identity. Because that while he said in Summorum Pontificum that the Latin form of the Mass would then would, you know, it would then actually be kind of come to known as the extraordinary form, and then new churches form as the ordinary form. While that was while that was kind of the gist of what he was saying. The fact of what he was saying, the eternal truth of what he was saying, is that it doesn't matter what you do, you can never eliminate the Mass promulgated by Pope St. Pius V. It can never be eliminated because it was deemed holy, and it was deemed holy by the Holy Pontiff in an infallible teaching, and it had been held sacred for more than 500 years in that form as it was locked in by Pope St. Pius V, but was locked in by Pope St. Pius V specifically because it was the eternal form. I'm trying to be as clear as possible as I can with this, and I know language has been bastardized, especially it's one of the reasons why I really don't like the English language is because it changes so much. So there's a lot of latitude that I don't intend to be in these statements that is just there because of the nature of the language I'm using. <clears throat> By making that declaration that the traditions that we had because he wasn't just yes, he said he said the Tridentine form of the mass. He said the Mass of St. Pius V. He said specifically the liturgy. But he also said 
that which we hold to be sacred, which the church has always held to be sacred, means that the ideas, the perspective, the teaching, the tradition, all of those things which we had always held to be sacred can never be rendered merely common, which is exactly what the objective is of Francis and New Church. It's to reduce that which was sacred to that which is common. And it cannot be done. It can't. So now that Papa Benedetto is out of the way, and I don't know why it took until the death of Cardinal Pell for me to actually start thinking of this. Maybe it was, I don't know, maybe it was God putting a little bit of a punctuation point, given the fact that Cardinal Pell was falsely accused for the one thing that Francis has been protecting in New Church. That might be, I don't know, that could be, maybe I'm reading a little much into it, who knows. But the stage has been set. And the Holy Father has himself said that new church is not the same as the old church. And because new church is not the same as the old church, and old church is the eternal church, new church is at best a heresy and at worst an apostasy. That's just a fact. And while there are shades of gray in there, because to be sure, I know locally there's a priest that refuses to fully succumb to the modernism that's being foisted upon the whole of the Catholic Church. I know locally there's at least one priest. There may be more, but there's at least one priest. And I, in all honesty, I've attended several masses in the area at different parish churches in my area. And there seems to be, even when I'm looking and I'm going, okay, this is actually abominably new church. And then all of a sudden there's some practice that the priest holds on to. Because all of the priests in my area are younger. There's a practice that the priest holds on to where all of a sudden I'm sitting there looking and I'm going, oh, I recognize specifically those movements. And it always centers right at the moment of consecration, where when everything else seems to be very new church, and as soon as they get to the moment of consecration, everything gets real, really fast. What do I mean? I make no secret about the fact that I am traditionally an attender of the Mass at a chapel of, of uh, one of the St. Pius X chapels. I consider myself a parishioner at that church, despite the very long drive, and also despite the fact that in the area, at that church, it, it, the Mass is only available every other week. But on the off weeks, occasionally I do a little bit of searching because I want to see what else is around. And on the off weeks, what I've found are priests 
who are willing to concede certain degrees. Now, the one that's actually closest to me is willing to concede the least. He wears the old vestments. The Novus Ordo liturgy is given entirely in Latin. And he's extremely serious. There's there's a lot of this there's a lot of this stuff that you can kind of tell by his actions he's he's a little bit less serious about, but they're not actually directly related to the Mass itself. In point of fact, actually it's the things um, the things that he sets up for the for the for the congregation to prepare themselves for the mass he's a little bit quick about because it's literally to set the parish up so that they begin the prayers while he's donning the vestments and then when he comes out the mass is very very serious it's as reverent as it can be it is actually literally a unicorn mass And even though the restrictions have been placed in Latin in this diocese, the prayers he prays, he prays with the utmost sincerity, the utmost reverence, the utmost solemnity. And when it comes to the consecration, everything goes specifically, directly, and exactly according to the rubrics. And it's very obvious that he takes it very seriously. Unlike you know, the stuff you see online. But even in some of the other churches, I've noticed that when it gets to the moment of consecration, everything else stops. And things get very, very, very serious at the moment of consecration. It's one of the odd things. It's one of the, re- it, it's truly is one, of, actually, I can just say it's one of the odd things. It's, it, it was so noticeable as to be palpable. You just look and you're like, oh, everything else is going on pretty much according to, you know, pretty much according to the way New Church does things. And then you get to the moment of consecration and all of a sudden time stops. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's actually quite beautiful. I think the young priests in this area know new church is dying and they're just waiting. They're just waiting for it to finally die. They're biding their time and they're trying to hold on to the faith and they're trying to impress upon their congregations the seriousness of the faith. Because during the homilies, I also noticed there's no talk about outside things except as it directly relates to the story in question the gospel and the, and specifically the homily about the gospel and about and about sacred scripture unless it relates directly to that they don't mention the stuff from the outside you don't hear mentioned about sports teams i talked with one of the priests with one of the priests after mass and I, and just kind of ask him a few questions here and there. And it was interesting because you could tell that he was doing everything he could to hold back his contempt for what was going on across the church at large. He was extremely careful in how he worded everything. how he worded his responses to the whole thing. And admittedly, I'd only been in his church once and so so at the time, and so I think <clears throat> there was a certain risk in just sitting there looking at it going, I really don't need I really don't need some rando off the street to be the guy that torpedoes my priestly career. But you could still I I spent a little bit of time in interrogation and so you can still read the body language and pick out from the language exactly what someone's trying not to say in the same way that you can tell what they're trying to say. And you can tell there was a certain amount of frustration. <clears throat> and with the recent declarations of Traditionis Custodis and the response of dubium, dubia and all of that, it, it was... It seems to be increasingly obvious to a lot of priests that the new church is losing the war. They're going to lose the war. I mean, they're going to lose the war anyway. That which is not with God is against God. A new church is very obviously against God because they're too much in favor of man. And you can tell that the priests... In a lot of cases, they understand this. 
There are no 30-year-old priests who are happy about Traditionis Custodis. I mean, there may be a few. It's possible that there it's possible that there's a bunch of homosexual priests managing to still enter into the church. It's actually probably likely when you get to air, when you get to dioceses like Chicago or the Archdiocese of Chicago or the Archdiocese of Detroit or you know the art uh, the diocese you know up in New York or in Washington D.C. It's possible that they're still managing to funnel a bunch of a bunch of homosexual priests into the seminaries and stuff. But the further out you get away from those from those pits of corruption. It, it is also obvious that the younger priests are not having it. They're done with this garbage. They're done with the nonsense. The fact is, is that Papa Benedetto is the reason why many of them went into the priesthood. It wasn't Pope Francis. It was Papa Benedetto. You have a priest today Who's finishing? Who's finishing out? Who's finishing out and becoming and getting ordained this year? They made the decision under Papa Benedetto. Because remember, Francis has only been in. He's only been the Pope for ten years. Seminary starts roughly about age eighteen or nineteen. Graduation happens at roughly age twenty-nine age 29, age 30. So as of right now, there are no priests who made the decision to become a priest under Pope Francis. And that'll be true for another year or so. All of the priests who came in, who are, be, who are priests now, are priests in the aftermath of Sumorum Pontificum. They are priests after the pattern of Sumorum Pontificum and after the pattern of, pa- of Papa Benedetto. The priests who are here now are not priests because of Pope Francis. That's not going to happen for another few years, if it happens at all. And that's a good thing. That's a usually good thing. That means there's reason to hope. Because Francis will die. And even though his successor is probably going to be after his likeness, by the time his successor takes the throne, new church is going to be ready to be thrown out into the dust heap. And that's assuming that God doesn't intervene and throw it in the dust heap himself. I am certain that you're aware of the fact that it is becoming my belief that we've only got a little while longer to go. That the intervention of our Blessed Mother is coming. And the rumblings seem to be happening. Yes, the enemy is surrounding us on all sides. Yes, they are attacking us from every angle. Yes, that is absolutely true. They're up in the rafters, they're up they're they're up in the battlements, they're firing, they're they're launching the catapults, they're doing all of those things. It's coming at us from all sides. But our lady has also set the groundwork through her servant Papa Benedetto. Now, I don't 
I'm not going to speak to I'm not going to speak to his sanctity. I don't this 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 discussion is absolutely outside of that. I am reasonably confirmed of his sanctity just based on the comparison of the things that were going on at the time with him to the things that were going on at the time with me and I'm reasonably confirmed but there's obviously like somebody could probably pick me apart with that one and whatever if that's if that's what you want to do go for it I'm reasonably concerned with I'm I'm reasonably confirmed in his sanctity because there's no doubt in my mind that the abominations that have come out of out of Francis's pontificate have been nothing but wound after wound after wound Let's run down the list Amoris Laetitia when would Benedict have ever taught that? Not ever. When would Benedict have allowed... I mean, they may have done it without his, without his permission, but when would he have allowed the most liberal, psychotic view of Amoris Laetitia to be the confirmed path that, that the pontificate wanted to go? And you can run down that list. Amoris Laetitia, Laudato Si, Querida Amazonia, the Synod on the Family, this Synod of Synods crap that's going on. None of this, none of this would have been dreamable, imaginable under Papa Benedetto. Papa Benedetto probably actually would have gotten pushed to the point where he just gave the papal smackdown to Germany for the crap that they're doing with the Synodal Way. Had they tried to pull that under his pontificate, he would have had no choice. There is nothing coming out of the German synod that is, in, that is in line with the theology and the understanding of Christ's mystical body and the understanding of Christ's eternal church. There's nothing coming out of that synod that's in line with what Papa Benedetto taught. Nothing. These things would have aggrieved him. They probably aggrieved him greatly. I don't know for sure, but I but we now know absolutely that Traditionis Custodis was a great wound to Pope Benedict's heart. Because it was absolutely the opposite of what he had intended. Now, whether he saw it from, you know, more of an academic sort of historical standpoint as to what as to what it would obviously do, because it would obviously be a bone of contention. The Society of Saint Pius X, the Society of Saint Pius X would obviously not allow any of that. They would obviously not change anything that they're doing. Not because they're outside of the jurisdiction of the Pope, but specifically because there's no enforcement mechanism that was going to work coming from the Pope. Short of him actually just a, a, writing a papal bull excommunicating the whole society. Which he obviously wasn't going to do. Because I think, again, God is going to teach the eternal truth through the papacy one way or another. He was working to reconcile with the Society of St. Pius X. 
They were trying to find a way to bring the assets of the society under the control of Rome. The assets of the society are not under the control of Rome. They have a completely different legal structure in all of, with all of their material goods. And because they have a completely different legal structure, and there's only so much you can really do because you really don't want all of those people who are giving so much money <laughs> to leave the church completely. Actually, i got to be honest with you. There's no earthly explanation why the society wasn't excommunicated formally. There isn't. Pope Francis does not agree with the theology of the Society of St. Pius X. The Society of St. Pius X holds the eternal faith. And they hold the eternal faith including the primacy of St. Peter. They will not allow themselves, they will not allow that they themselves cleave from Rome. And every, every pronouncement that has been against the society, including those Regarding, regarding Archbishop Lefebvre's excommunication and the excommunication of the four bishops, every last one of those statements has been rescinded and declared as illegitimate. They've said that the excommunication of Archbishop Lefebvre was illegitimate. They've said that the excommunication of the bishops was illegitimate. They've said as much. They didn't really know what to do with the society. But they absolutely said... And this Pope has said that you can receive all the sacraments from the society. You can't receive the, you, you, you cannot receive the sacraments from a group of priests who have been excommunicated. Except under extreme circumstances. Those are not the statements of the Pope. Those are not the statements coming out of Rome. Coming out of Rome, you can receive the sacraments with the society. You can receive confession, you can be married, you can receive communion, you can go to confirmation, you can do all of those things with the society. That de facto declares that the society is not in schism with Rome. They've declared that every one of those statements against the society, against Archbishop Lefebvre, were illegitimate, were invalid. They were invalid at the moment they were spoken. What is that except the providence of God? Because from a material standpoint, if I wanted to take the church in a new direction, I would just cut them off. But over the last several decades, that has proceeded to not happen. Sure, there's controversy about it. There's some people who are going to be like, oh, well, this, that, and the other, blah, 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 whatever. None of that refutes the facts. The only way that you can refute the facts is to refuse to look for them. Which is not Catholic. 
So it has to be by the providence of God that, that the Society of St. Pius X is still confirmed in the church. Because if I were Francis, I'm not even joking, if I were Francis, as soon as the society kept doing their own thing and we were shutting all the rest of the churches down, I'd have cut them off. If I really wanted to take the church in a new direction, I would have cut them off and said, this is not correct. Now, he's trying to do that, but he's doing it in such an oblique manner, and he's already been undercut by his, by his uh, predecessor, that at this point, let's face it, at this point, everybody's, everybody who read Traditionis Custodis, when Traditionis Custodis was promulgated, everybody recognized that it was a war against tradition. From Austin Ivory to the most conservative and, I don't know, crazy Feniite, they all recognized. From the, most, from the wildest set of a contest all the way to the wildest left calf. They all recognized that Traditionis Custodis was an assault on tradition. Now, the set of contests have decided, well, you know, the Sea of Peter's been vacant since 1958 anyway, so we don't really have to listen to this guy, but ha 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 ha, the rest of y'all who actually think you're in the church. And, I mean, let's be real, there is more than a little bit of validity to that argument. And I say not to the argument of set of contism, but if you're not a set of contest, then all of these things that are coming out of Rome puts you in kind of a difficult pickle. Now, my my answer to that is that a difficult challenge like that is exactly where a Catholic belongs. That's my challenge to that. Being stuck in being stuck in that quandary where you go, do I follow this pope to damnation? The obvious answer the obvious answer for anybody concerned about the state of their soul and about the state of whether or not they follow God, the obvious answer is no, I don't follow I don't follow what these people are doing because they're doing crazy things that are obviously against the faith. But it is, however, significantly easier for me to simply say, well, then that means there's no Pope in Rome. Ooh, speaking of Pope in Rome, it has come out recently. It's been covered by Dr. Taylor Marshall, Dr. Anthony Stein. It has been covered, I think, by The Guardian or The Telegraph. It was one of the UK newspapers. It's now, it's now actually been confirmed by multiple sources that supposedly the conservative wing of the Catholic Church is plotting against Francis to force him into, to force him into retirement. I do not think that's the case. Flat out, I don't think that's the case. Why? Because anybody who's got the truth in their heart knows that Francis stacked the deck. That the entire college of cardinals, all of the voting members, the ones who will be voting in the next conclave, he has managed to appoint a two-thirds majority of cardinals that are after his own fashioning. You want proof? Let's go with Cardinal McElroy, Cardinal Supich, Cardinal Gregory. They're going to be voting members of the College of Cardinals. Francis flooded the college 
with cardinals after his after his image. So there's no way that the conservative cardinals are going to say, hey, we're going to do this and we're going to force a conclave. Because the only thing that you're going to get is Francis II. If you're lucky, it'll be Francis II. And then there'll be a real quandary. Because at that point, we'll be the second pope in a row who's decided to take the church in this direction and may not be as forgiving as Pope Francis. I do not think that the conservative cardinals, first off, I'm hard pressed to, I mean, what conservative cardinals? Cardinal Burke? He's retired. He's not even a voting member, I don't think. Cardinal Seurat? Retired. I don't think he's a voting member either. So who is it who's actually going to apply this pressure? What conservative cardinals are still actively members of, uh, actively voting members of the next conclave? Yes, there may be some, oh, we need to do X, Y, and Z. Hey, that's, well, probably true. Very likely true. But who's going to be the one to force, who's going to be, who are going to be the ones to force the next conclave? Would that not play right into the left, into the left wing branch of what is supposedly the Catholic Church's hand? Don't believe the hype. I don't, I don't believe the hype. I don't recommend that you believe the hype either. This idea that the conservative cardinals are going to apply pressure to Francis to force him into retirement, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't buy it. Because most of the voting members of the, of, of the College of Cardinals are currently apostates. I mean, it guarantees, even, even if the next college goes perfectly normal, the fact is, is the voting members are all apostates. Now, if, if they can call Francis out as a heretic and as an apostate, if they can make the declaratio that he is an invalid pope and that he was probably invalid at the start, that would be different. But if you're hearing, if, if you're hearing, as, and they're going to keep drumming it up, because, I mean, let's be real, it, it's a great scandal. It's worth the clicks. It's worth researching. But the more you hear about these supposedly going to, these, these, these men supposedly going to apply pressure for the retirement of Fran, for, so that Francis resigns and abdicates, the next conclave are all his guys. Think about that. The next conclave are all his guys. There's supposed to be 70 members of the College of Cardinals, according to tradition. I think there's something like 130, 140. And all of the voting members are the new appointees because, because voting is age-restricted. So all of the voting members are new appointees, which would be pretty much all his guys. The next pope is going to pass... 
aside from whatever politicking goes on, the next pope is going to pass with flying color. It's going to be quick. It's going to be quick because all of them are of the same ilk. The only way it doesn't go quickly is because there's too much infighting on the left wing and each one of them is jockeying for position. It's the only way it doesn't go quickly. Otherwise, no matter what, the next pope is going to be after after Francis's image. Because there are no cardinals going the other way. There are none that have... The four cardinals who, who issued the dubia to Amoris Laetitia, I think half of them are dead already. So who is there who is there to openly challenge Francis? Think about this for a minute. You look across the College of Cardinals, look across at all the cardinals who speak out. Who are the cardinals? Because you've got McElroy, Supich, you've got Gregory, and that's just in America. You've got the entire German Conference of Bishops, and their cardinals are probably on that same point. I think maybe Cardinal Braunmuller might be the only might be the only one standing up standing up over there. Like, who are these magical cardinals who are going to provide a conservative pope at the next conclave? Maybe they're out there. Admittedly, I don't I don't dive into, you know, the Red Hat's politics too much. But if they're not speaking out, they're not doing anything. And the only ones I've seen speaking out was Cardinal Brandmuller, Cardinal Burke. End of list. Because even Cardinal Seurat only goes to a certain point. So I would not bother believing in the hype. Oh, they're going to try and push. They're going to try and push Francis out. I don't think that's the case. I really don't. I would love to know who this conservative wing of the College of Cardinals is. Because I can only name a couple. And I don't think he, and and no joke, I'm pretty sure that Cardinal Seurat and Cardinal Burke are not voting members. And since they're the only two I can think of, because George Cardinal Pell just passed away, and I don't even think he was a voting member because I think he got ousted pretty unceremonious, unceremoniously. Who, who, who? Who out there is going to vote for somebody other than another Pope Francis? I know I just spent like five minutes asking the question, who out there? I got it. It started to sound very, very repetitive to me too what these last few weeks has proven to me what this week most especially has proven to me is that God has his church in his hands 
Like, how can you say that? Everything you've literally just said, everything seems up in chaos. No, it's very obviously, it's very obvious that God has his church in his hands. I can see the fingerprints all through, all throughout the last 40 years. I can see his fingerprints in keeping the things that he needed to keep together just long enough for Our Lady to show up. And for all the conflict on the traditional side of the church, the fact is, we don't disagree on all that much. What we And what's funny is that what we disagree on in the traditional side of the church is actually debatable. The set of Acontists have a theory. But they have a theory that has neither been confirmed nor condemned by the church. What does that mean? That means it's debatable. That means there's room until the church defines what's going on. Now, granted, you know my position on it. You know why my position is is on it. And you know that, and you know that it, I mean, let's be real. If you listen to this podcast, you probably know I take great pleasure in beating, in beating them about the head and neck about it. But the fact is, at the end of the day, ooh, two cliche phrases in, in one sentence, my bad. It doesn't change the fact that what set of contests disagree with the rest of us on is, in fact, debatable. It is within the left and right limits of what is still open for debate. Now, they can make the claims all the way, ah, that's not true. No, y- yes, it is. Nobody's made a, nobody's made a formal pro- proclamation about what happens when the, there's never been a teaching in the church about, the, uh, about a formal, pro- there's never been a formal proclamation about what happens when the, when, when the Holy Pontiff is a heretic, where the standard of measure is. Right now, it sits with the cardinals who we know are going to do nothing because they're all heretics too. Ooh, he's th- he's slinging mud in every direction. Yeah, whatever. It's 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 observable. <clears throat> They're observably heretical as well. They are observably unwilling to stand up for the Church of Christ. So they're observably useless in this debate until somebody gets a spine and actually makes the definitions. What set of contests disagree with everyone else? in the traditional world that thing that in on which we disagree and most and disagree most vehemently the fact is it's still debatable because it would not be debatable if so, if somebody would have actually written this is the church's law regarding thus and so and they haven't they never got to it because the franco-prussian war broke out before we could actually do, handle all that because, oh, hey, by the way, I'm sure that, I'm reasonably certain that was on the docket. And Satan was just like, hang on a minute, that's my that's my opening right there. We're not going to let that pop off. France, go to war with Prussia. Let's do this thing. Let's get, we need to interrupt this thing one way or another. Because I'm fairly certain that that, like, with all of the debating and everything that was going on in the First Vatican Council, they were going to get to that thing. What happens when the Pope is a heretic? They were going to get to that thing, without a doubt. Because somebody was going to ask the question, and then everybody, oh my goodness, who could think of such a thing? And they and they would have said, hey, well, we need to think of it just in case. 
So we're still free to debate it. It doesn't matter how hot and bothered anybody on either side gets about it. It really doesn't. We're still free to debate it. And what does that mean? That means that the set of contests, they're still Catholic. The Society of St. Pius X is still Catholic. The Fraternal, the Fraternal Society of St. Peter is still Catholic. The Institute of Christ the King is still Catholic. <clears throat> At least until, you know, the former Ecclesia Dei communities are all broken, and they will be broken. That's coming. But the things that we disagree on are things that we're free to disagree on. Lest we forget that we had saints on both sides of the aisle rooting for, uh, rooting for popes and anti-popes, contesting with each other vigorously about the validity of their chosen candidate. And it made not one difference to their sanctity because their sanctity was not dependent on who or how holy a pope is. My sanctity is not dependent on who or how holy the Roman Curia is. It's not dependent on who or how holy my bishop is. It's not dependent on who or how holy the, the Pope is. Because it, at the end of the day, it's my sanctity. When I have to stand there at my particular judgment, and again at the general judgment, I don't have to be all like, well, the Pope was good, and so I was a better Catholic. I don't have to be, I don't have to worry about, Father, you, I don't have any, it was, excuse me, I almost said exactly what the truth was. The, trying to come up with a fib is an excuse. The fact is, is I'm trying to, you know, it makes it much more difficult. I can't, I won't be standing there in front of our Lord going, but Pope Francis was a bad Pope, and it's his fault that I was a bad Catholic. I don't have that luxury because I have never once interacted with the Pope. I've seen him on TV. I've seen him in video clips online. His holiness, not his title. I'm not talking about his title. This is one of those really weird things. Okay, so my holiness is not predicated on his holiness. My sanctity is not predicated on any on any of his excellencies not predicated on any of them and so i can go back and forth with with the sedes admittedly i'm loath to do that because i've already made my arguments and i feel kind of over it i hate repeating myself but the set of a contest are not my enemy the followers the, 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 the ones who were total stands of Father James, James Altman are not my enemy. Father James Altman's not a bad guy. I question a few things here and there, but, I mean, whatever. His sanctity doesn't predicate my sanctity. I think he's a good priest. I think he's a zealous priest. I think he has all of the zeal that Archbishop Fulton Sheen talked about Catholics not having. And maybe there's some flaws here and there. I don't know. I'm not a theologian. I'm, I'm not someone who studies ecclesiology. I'm not someone who th studies theology. 
I'm literally only trying to, I try to spend most of my time studying that which makes me holy. Trying to move in that direction. Because of the, in the last day, whether or not, whether or not Father James Altman gets into heaven has no effect on me. I pray that he gets into heaven. I hope that he gets into heaven. I want him to get into heaven because I think it would be awesome for Father James Altman to be in heaven for his sake and for the sake of God. But he doesn't establish whether or not I, I turn into a holy, heroic Catholic. To be sure, I will take some of his example because, as I said, he's very zealous. But whatever disagreements I may or may not have, and truth be told, I don't have that many because I think, by and large, aside from aside from being kind of sloppy with the way he says stuff, which is true of us all, <clears throat> I'm pretty much on board with him. He is an ally. He is a brother in Christ. And he's a priest. And that's also true for Father Cicada. That's also true for Father Feeney. It's also true for Bishop Williamson. It's also true for Cardinal Seurat. There's a lot of... And if you notice, as I keep laying those lines out there, there's a wide berth. Because it's also true for Cardinal Burke. I hope... Honestly, I hope before he, before he passes to his eternal reward, I hope one day to get a chance to meet him. Because I've heard he is an amazing man. So I hope and pray that I get an opportunity to meet him. Those are not my enemies. No, no one whose name I've just said is my enemy. No one at EWTN is my enemy. Not, not any of the commentators, not any of the priests. I, dis, I disagree vigorously with some of the commentators on EWTN. And they're still not my enemy. And that's kind of the important part. I think that's the thing that, that had been getting lost. <clears throat> Don't mistake a vehement disagreement with enemy status. I may disagree with Dr. Anthony Stein. It turns out, for the most part, I really don't. We have some crosswise views, nothing real major, in all honesty, because he's a very good, he, seemed, he appears to be a very good Catholic. I have not met him in person yet. Hope to meet him in person, too. There's no amount of falling out that could happen between me and any other Catholic commentator, particularly any of the ones that I've said or talked about on the show, there's no amount of falling out that we could have that would make them an enemy. We may permanently dislike each other. But there's nothing that's going to happen to make, the, to make them my enemy. Not ever. Certainly not my enemy in this crusade for the faith of Christ. So what... We'll see. But we'll see when it comes to church militant. They seem they seem to be on fire. I honestly think that they're going to end up falling away. 
They seem to be on fire. They seem to be, they appear to be falling away already. So we'll see about them. But that's actually like, you're going to have to fall away from the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith in practice, like in constant practice. But whether it's RTF Mike, or it's Patrick Coffin, or it's Trad Patrick, whether it's Cardinal Burke, Cardinal Seurat, Father James Altman, Father Altier, Father Ripperger, we're all moving in the same direction. We're all trying to We're all trying to get closer to the cross of our Lord. We're all trying to duck under our Lady's mantle. We're all trying to be Catholic for the sake of our Lord. So don't get it twisted. The things that we disagree on, we have the freedom to disagree on. Now, Protestants on the other hand, I love you guys. But you guys aren't free to disagree. Error has no rights. And the things that you teach were not always taught by the church. The things that you guys teach was not taught in 33 AD, was not taught in 60 AD, was not taught in 300 AD, was not taught in 600 AD, was not taught in 1300 AD, and was not even taught in 1600 AD after your predecessors broke off from the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What you teach today was not taught ever by the church. And you're not free to disagree. You cannot be my brother if you're not, if you do not share both my mother and father. It's that simple. <clears throat> and unlike my fellow Catholics, you can actually be an enemy. Because the moment you become an enemy to Christ, you become my enemy. The moment you become an enemy to his mother, you become his enemy and therefore my enemy. And the moment you become an enemy to church, to the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, you become Christ's enemy and you become my enemy. You do not have that same latitude on the Protestant side of the fence. For all of the Catholics who are not headed down the paths that have already been, the path, any of the paths that have already been condemned by Holy Mother Church, for all of them, they cannot be my enemy. Well, I mean, they could physically decide to be my enemy. But as long as they're not Christ's enemy, they're not my enemy. Everybody else? I know exactly what to tell you. Vade retro satana. Because I'm not going to hear it. And thanks to Pope Francis... who appears to be lining himself up as an enemy to the eternal church, he's made the war much more obvious. 
He's made it very plain to see. With his motu proprio being in direct contradiction to Pope Benedict's motu proprio, and the fact that Sumorum Pontificum and Traditionis Custodis cannot coexist as church teaching. He's made it obvious that we need to redouble our efforts in praying for him. He's made it obvious that we need to redouble our efforts in praying for the Curia. He's made it obvious that we need to that we need to redouble our efforts in praying for the cardinals of the church, for the bishops of the church, and for the priests of Holy Mother Church. But he's also made it obvious that new church is not church. The Novus Ordo, if allowed to progress on its in its direction, will lead to the damnation of billions. It has already led to the damnation of billions. Because the thing that flat, the thing that actually popped off like wildfire across New Church was as soon as they introduced the Novus Ordo Missae. Like wildfire, mediocrity and lukewarmness spread across the church. With notable resistant pockets. Fatima, Garabandal, actually those two. Medjugorje has actually been doing rather well for Catholics. The church, the church is thriving there. Catholic fervor is thriving there. Judge a tree by its fruit, of course. Everywhere else, the church is basically dead. I mean, we're talking 90% reduction, 95, 97, 99% reduction in priests and religious across the church. I mean, it's reduced across the church regardless, but, you know, you, go to, you look at Garabandal, Garabandal has only reduced by about 40%, 40-50% priests and religious. That's well above the average. The average, of course, being 90%. A 90% drop in most of the church. So we'll see. We'll see how all that ends up playing out. The one thing I know for a fact is that when it comes time for the general judgment, we'll all know whether or not Garabandal and, and Medjugorje were valid. We'll know whether or not the apparitions are not valid, um, were real. We'll know whether or not the apparitions of the Blessed Mother to, to uh, Sister uh, Mary Ephraim were real. In point of fact, actually, at the time of the general judgment, I'm, 
and probably in our particular judgments, I would not be surprised if all of the actual Marian apparitions were held. And in truth, actually, some of the stuff, some of the stuff out of the less obvious apparitions will probably be held. It'd be like, look, I was there, I was there, I was there. You heard about all of these. You heard the message coming out of all of these, and they were all the truth. And you missed the bus. Why? The only defense on that one is I don't like the church doesn't actually require the belief in those things. Except where it's already de fide, because we should the message should already be a message that is de fide. But pray the rosary has been a teaching in the church for 800 years. Like we're not, pray the rosary is not like your average church teaching. Pray the rosary has been a church teaching for 800 years. Just pointing that, just, I'm just going to leave that out on the table there. We didn't just, like, Our Lady of Fatima didn't invent the rosary. We're not talking about a teaching that was like, oh yeah, no, that just popped off a hundred, no, bro. The rosary was given to St. Dominic. That's 800 years ago. The practice of praying the rosary is an 800-year-old practice. And they've come out in various forms because, of course, you have, like, um, uh, St. Bridget of Sweden. Um, there's one. There's there's a particular form of the rosary that was promulgated by, uh, by her and by her cultists. <clears throat> you have the Franciscan crown rosary, slightly different formation. Because of course the rosary as we understand it today is five decades plus the three our, plus the Our Father the Hail, three Hail Marys and a Glory Be as far as beads, and then of course obviously the crucifix or the cross or whatever however that end that <clears throat> the cross or crucifix at the, at the end of it like that's the common rosary across the Universal Church, but you know you had St Bridget's had six decades. The Franciscan Crown Rosary has seven decades. The Psalter, the one that I, the one my personal favorite is the one I use as my personal broadsword, is fifteen decades. Even the one I'm going to count it among them because we're of course the, the whole principal point of, of the Rosary is to meditate on the Scripture, is to meditate on the Gospel, and there's nothing not gospel about the five additional decades promulgated by Pope John Paul II. So even the 20 decade, even a 20 decade rosary is still in line with the teaching. Different forms. Different mysteries. And apparently there have been thousands of mysteries meditated on using the Holy Rosary. Like, ah, oh, but it's just the 15 decades. I'm less certain. It couldn't just be the 15 decades. By the way, actually, I remember there was a thing a few years back where that was actually a really big scandal. 
and people just fighting about it. No, the, their actual rosary has 15 decades. Well, Pope John Paul II added another five decades, so actually it's 20 decades. It's always been, it's always, no, it actually hasn't. The Franciscan crown rosary is ancient, and it is seven decades. The seven joys and the seven sorrows of Our Lady. The Franciscan crown rosary is seven decades, and it is ancient. St. Bridget of Sweden, if I'm, if, I think it's St. Bridget of Sweden. Anyway, St. Bridget's rosary is six decades, and it is ancient. We're talking like seven, eight hundred years old. It has not always been. Now I've got the preference for the 15 decades because it's the Psalter. Because 15 decades is 150 Hail Marys in line with the 150 Psalms. It's my preference on that one. But I also carry a Franciscan crown rosary. Generally, my everyday carry includes a five-decade rosary, the Chaplet of the Holy Face, the Franciscan Crown Rosary, and believe it or not, my 15-decade rosary. Thing's huge. That's my everyday carry. Do I pray all of those every day? No, I wouldn't have enough time in a day. I mean, it would be an hour for the 15 decades, another... 30 minutes for the Franciscan crown, 15 minutes for the Chaplet of the Holy Face, or actually about 7 minutes for the Chaplet of the Holy Face, and another 15 to 20 minutes for the, for, for the standard rosary. And I couldn't possibly fit all of that in and actually and still pray the office and all that, so... there's a moment I'm in trouble, everything seems to be going awry, I'm starting to get frustrated or angry or sad or depressed or despair, oof, quick five minutes with the chaplet, right as rain. I need to try and figure out some kind of major problem. It's big. Remember the Franciscan crown is the seven joys and the seven sorrows. And I already have a devotion to Our Lady of Sorrows. I mean, she's in the opener of the of the of the podcast. The Franciscan Rosary comes off my belt, and I and I go to my mother and I ask. Oh, I forgot one. I've also got a chaplet of Saint Michael opposite pocket to the chaplet of the holy face because of course duh <laughs> saint michael's in the opener of the podcast too oh it's specifically this no no it's not all of those chaplets the franciscan rosary the, Brig the, the uh, Brigantine Rosary. These are all ancient devotions. Ancient devotions. These jokers didn't just pop up. Most of them... Check it out. 
I know that there's a lot of a lot of animus against the Divine Mercy Chaplet, and I got it. But most of the other devotions are old. Like they've been around for a hot minute. Among the newest chaplets are the Divine Mercy Chaplet and I think St. Joseph's Chaplet. <clears throat> those, are, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think those are among the newest chaplets, devotionals in the church. Everything else is centuries old. And not a few centuries, centuries old. The Brigantine, the Brigantine Rosary, if I recall correctly, came out in the 14th century. The Dominican Rosary, the one that we all know and love, came out in the 12th century, or 13th century. No, 12th century, excuse me. The Franciscan Rosary would have been contemporary with St. Francis. They're all 10, 20, they're all 10, 15, 20-fold older than the Divine Mercy Chaplet. And the Divine Mercy Chaplet's not a bad prayer. It is literally liturgical prayers. Liturgical prayers that would have been very common to a Polish nun. <sighs> Gracious. <clears throat> anyway. Since we're talking about the rosary, I'll simply conclude by saying, pray your rosary. Pray for the repose of the soul of Cardinal George Pell. Because he did just pass. And it does appear to be an end of an era. We're at the end of an epoch. With the passing of Pope Benedict and obviously the passing of Cardinal Pell, we're at the end of an epoch. And I'm glad. Because if new church keeps going in the direction that it's going, it's going to be more and more obvious that new church is not church. Which, if I was the type to sell t-shirts, I would actually, that would be my t-shirt. It would be, new church is not church. Those would be, that would actually be the, that would actually be, I really actually should design those. We'll see. Anyway. Pray for the church. Pray for the nation. Because obviously, while I'm busy talking about all this church stuff, that's not like the, it's not like the country isn't still, you know, on its path. Pray for the church. Pray for the nation. Pray for us in Catholic social media that we continue to shine the light. And, as you know, Doctor Marshall would say, continue to be the salt of the earth, and therefore continue to be. Salty. <laughs> Pray for us all. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. May God bless you and the Virgin protect you. In nomine Patris et Fili, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.